What up, everybody? Uh, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Matt, aka Cut Corners. Uh, this is Serato Unscripted. Uh, if you've never tuned in before, we interview amazing people. We get to chat to them about uh, some of their their stories, their their careers, and uh, other interesting topics. We've got some really cool people already tuned in. What up, Sophie Nam? What up, Spinurita? What up, Sonny James? What up, Knowledge? And uh, who else we got in here? Uh, Ms. Good Egg, I believe. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Uh, thank you guys all for tuning in. And if you're tuning in on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, thank you very much for, for listening in. Um, I want to take a minute to introduce uh, today's guest. Uh, I'm very excited to have uh, Lindsay on the show. This week's guest is one of my favorite DJs. She's known for playing an eclectic array of classics and really deep cuts. So I'm constantly transporting her streams. She also hosts an incredible show I highly recommend you check out. The show is called Black is Black. It's on Mixcloud. Um, it's one of the most impressive shows I've listened to and learned a lot about um, music history. And uh, you can, if you just type in exclamation point follow in the chat, it'll pull up her Twitch channel and the, a link to the show and her Instagram. So you'll be able to uh, check that out. Uh, right right away if you wanted to. So without further ado, please let me welcome to the show DJ Lindsay. What up, DJ Lindsay? <laughs> thank, thank you for being our guest today, Lindsay. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here on this Serato Twitch channel. Absolutely. We're so Talking excited to, to you. have you. <laughs> um, Let's let's get right into a, a little bit of background about your DJ career, if you don't mind, um, just to you know get acquainted with uh, a bit of your history. Um, I'd love to know what the first record you ever purchased was. The first record, Spinurita's in the chat, so she's gonna appreciate this one. But the first record I ever bought was the Sampladelic Relic compilation of D Light remixes. I specifically wanted the Call Me, the drum and bass remix of Call Me. So that I remember I went to Satellite Records in Atlanta, Georgia. That was where I purchased that record. Wow. And yeah, that was my first purchase. I remember vividly bringing it home and then not having turntables. Like, okay, well, I have it. <laughs> That's awesome. Drum and bass, hey? Mm -hmm. So this was what, like uh, late 90s or? Yes. I'm not going to stamp an age on myself <laughs> but yes in the late 90s is when i purchased that <laughs> that's awesome we got um my boss subliminal in the chat he's a really big drum and bass fan so i'm sure he'll appreciate that what was uh oh, yeah drum and bass like for you like this you said you got this in atlanta was was there a drum and bass scene in atlanta at that time yeah huge it was there was a huge rave scene <clears throat> here and that was like my first outside like i moved to georgia from arizona and like we would like go drive out into the desert and like somebody would play music from their car. But it wasn't the same as like nightlife in, in Atlanta when I was here was really a special time. It's funny. I was talking to somebody else about this yesterday. Like New York is great. Like New York is like setting trends constantly and always at the cutting edge of everything. But Atlanta, there is a special type of music appreciation here that's different. Like, I just remember like going to a party and you dance your way to wherever you were going to go. It was just all about enjoying the music. It was a different type of like carefree attitude about things. People were never too cool to actually enjoy and like be in the moment. So <clears throat> 
that was my first experience of like club, nightlife, raves here in Atlanta. So yeah, that's that was my entry point into drum and bass. And I didn't know anything about who produced it, who were the DJs, nothing. So I just kept hearing like, you know, reggae samples or hip hop, R&B samples. And I was like, that's interesting that this is almost like double time hip hop beats and then watching people dance like halftime to it. I don't know. It was like, okay, I think I get the perspective, but I just didn't know anything about the culture. So that's where, you know, buying records came in and talking to people who were DJs here. And then I started a magazine called Frank. It was called Frank ATL um, when we started it. And then it ultimately became called just regular. It was Frank 151 because we started it at um, Steve Malbin was one of my partners. His apartment was 15 Standish apartment one. So it was Frank 151. And then it's just now it's just Frank. And I think it's still around. I don't know. I stopped doing Frank a long time ago. Just when I left Atlanta to go to New York, I was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I have a lot more to learn. That's crazy, though. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that story about Frank. I I believe I have some of the, there was kind of smaller magazines, right? There are really small. Yeah, yeah, we were copying Flyer magazine fully. We were like, oh, we'll just do like a club guide for Atlanta. We'll sell ads to all the local spots and like Little Five Points or East Atlanta. And um, Stephen's brother, Mike Malbin, who owns the Chop Shop, he worked at Echo with like Curtis Coltrane, uh, Coltrane Curtis, sorry, at the time. And so they were plugging in, plugging us in with all like New York DJs. So we were doing parties where we were booking, you know, all of, we booked Rich Medina and, and tons of different DJs from New York here in Atlanta just to promote the party. So, yeah, that wow, was that a fun time, but it was just, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, I have, I want to be in New York. I don't want to be trying to figure this out with no money. I have so much more I need to learn. So I bounced and went to New York. And and like I mean that I didn't know I didn't know that story about Frank though at all because that that magazine was really it it really made the rounds I mean we got it here in Vancouver where I'm broadcasting from and and uh, I collected those they were fascinating magazines so well uh, like they were so on point culturally like I was learning so much from those magazines so that's fascinating and then so you moved to New York and this is where I, I guess a, a big part of your DJ career took off though right and and you started some nights and started DJing there. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I kind of started playing around here in Atlanta. I was um, really good friends with um, DJ Rashida. Oh yeah. Shout we out both Rashida. started DJing at the same time. So I would bring my records over to her house and we would practice cause she had turntables. So I would just go over there or I had friends that were in this group called mass influence and I would go over there and they'd be like, Oh, <laughs> I'd be so mad because I'd be like train wrecking, just trying to figure it out. Um, I, and DJ Lord sold me these turntables actually, and then I just got them fixed. Jasper, who used to own Turntable Lab, fixed these. Oh, nice. Turntable Lab was like a thing in New York. So, yeah, I practiced and practiced and practiced for a long time before I ever tried to play out. But then moving to New York, I didn't know what I was doing. Steve's brother was putting me on to these like, you know, cool downtown. Like it was like the overflow of like what Nels and Two Eyes was 
and I can't remember like what the clubs were, but it was like that crew of people. And I'm like, okay, well, so I'm going to, I'm finishing up the night and I'm playing drum and bass. And they'd be like, what the fuck <laughs> is happening? <laughs> so, I mean, ultimately I found my, like I was going to satellite records and then um, breakbeat science and the met people that were kind of out doing parties there. So I started out doing parties, drum and bass parties, it was just a very, very white male dominated scene at that time in the early 2000s of New York. And I couldn't, couldn't break through. Like it was a very, and the sound of drum and bass at the time was like that Ed Russian optical, very like hard driven, um, techie sounding drum bass which wasn't really what i liked the more liquid stuff mm -hmm. i liked more um you know some of the and see now of course and i'm standing sitting here and i know who everybody is and i'm just gonna draw a blank because that's how my brain doesn't function but um marcus intellects and st files fabio and groove writer some goldie production i really liked if i wanted something really hard i would do dillinger or lemon d there was always this like um there was always this more soulful influence to the stuff that I like to play. But then if you go to Concrete Jungle, it's either like very Raga, Amen, Break style, which is kind of what has come back now. Or mm. was that really aggressive, um, which was fine. It was fun to go out to and listen to. But it wasn't what I like preferred to play. So I couldn't get my foot in the door and... Um, broken beat started to become like this thing that people were listening to at the same I was getting like beat tapes I got like the NERD album on a CD I got like all these Duele um, demos I got and then I got like some for hero I got some bugs in the attic some sedgy like and I was like all of this stuff is like somehow kind of makes sense together I had already heard of Slum Village before I moved to New York. And so all of this stuff was interesting to me. And I was like, how can I figure out how to play all of this stuff that I like? So I don't know. I just started playing Broken Beat. And then at the time, going out, I met um, Alec DeRuggiero, uh, who was a booker at APT. And, um, and I was working for Girly Action, which is this music company doing music PR. So we represented like every electro clash band ever so fisher spooner lady tron wit anything that um what's his name put out larry t so i mean mount sims everything um i think we had peaches for a while but then we also had like legacy bands like um no doubt and um john spencer blues not john Spencer blues explosion what's the one that jonestown massacre dude i didn't work that band Oh, uh, but I did. I was doing tour press for like flogging Molly and all these groups that I didn't really know. And then I brought Santi on um, when she was still a part of Stift before she, when she was um, Santi Gold. Um, I brought her into the fold at Girly Action. Wow. So I was going out to all these industry things and seeing like what was happening with um, with Electro Clash. And I was like, something is off about this again to me like how do you do a party that's influenced so much so heavily by electronic music in the 80s and i don't hear no prince 
I don't hear no Nile Rodgers production. I don't hear no Jamin Lewis. I don't hear no Chicago house, no techno, none of it. So what is this? And I happened to be, because we worked all these bands, I had to go to the Electro Clash Festival at um, Webster Hall. And Dwayne and Language and I were like elbows against the bar, like, <laughs> I could appreciate it for what it was because I was like listening to it in the office all day. But we were like, we're missing a whole element in here. We all kind of had talked about it that day. And then we were at some, back in the day when all these brands were giving DJs stuff for free, they had like a full on suite at Winter Music Conference, Levi's did, uh, through the fader. And we were in there getting free clothes. We had to try shit on and pick out exactly what we wanted. And um, Knox Robinson was like, fuck Electro Clash, we need some Negro Clash. And we were like, that's it. <laughs> we had already been talking about how we wanted to do a party that was a celebration because like we had felt that was erasure happening with Electro Clash. So we were like, that's it. That's the name of the party. I'd already talked to Alec DeRogero and had a failed drum and bass party at APT. Oh, <laughs> the owners were not into it at all. They did not enjoy the drum and bass. So I was like, let me try something else. This is our idea. And yeah, that's where Negro Clash came to fruition. We just, everything just kind of fell into place. That's so awesome. Um, I've, there's actually, um, in your link tree, I was uh, digging through on your Instagram. There was a really great uh, Spotify playlist that you made of all of the artists that you wanted to highlight um, for the Negro Clash party that you, you, you played. And it was really great. I was like going through it. Uh, I was listening to it yesterday. And yeah, you're, you're highlighting a, such a, a nice, diverse range of people. You've got Larry Hurd in there. You've got Africa Bambata, Strafe, and, and all sorts of people. And yeah, I was even having a conversation to... Um, to my partner Gene yesterday about you know a lot of this a lot of that music was was very punk you know aesthetic too you know uh, like Strafe was like I've, when I've seen him he's like a punk dude you know it's like a yeah that New York sound as well in the 80s was really uh that cross-section like Prince you know this cross-section of new wave and punk and funk and dance music technology um and then somehow Absolutely. yeah like you said it, it kind of changed um and then you, you so you brought you brought that attention back with with negro clash was there with artists like you just said uh in your in your um you just mentioned santa gold and i was thinking about her and how and her career and um i had no idea you had such an instrumental role in bringing her uh bringing her just up. for her pr just for her pr period she's santa gold is is her own self she's so smart and like everything that's happened to her was because of her and she really is hands-on with everything that she does like it's really her unique point of view like talking about punk and you know santi gold's bit like was really pinnacle in the philly scene too i won't say anything else because i posted something on instagram and i got a text from santi like can you take that down oh, shit. <laughs> so you know if you ever get a chance i think mark ronson maybe got some of it out of her in the fader podcast when he interviewed her she talked a little bit about like some stuff that she was involved with in philly but i'll let her tell her own stories <laughs> <laughs> Fair but enough. just know that like santi is brilliant she is special she's really like um an artist is so talented so yeah I've... yeah I, don't, I didn't have anything to do with, besides bringing her in to be um uh, a client with when i was working at girly action 
I mean, her career is is really fascinating, though, and and I mean, her records are really phenomenal. And if you, I, if anyone's listening who hasn't heard Santi, Santi Gold, uh, definitely check it out. It's some of the like some of the most found, foundational music for me. Um, and and her mixtape with Diplo, um, what was it? Uh, I listened to that one a lot too, and that actually put me onto a lot of new wave music that I wasn't up on. Uh, Jerry on the holograms. Um, the the B fifty two stuff, like you said, produced by Nile Rodgers. Um, there were you know Mesopotamia. You know, there's all sorts of jam jams in there. You know, and it was all done very well. I thought that she she's really brought. You could definitely tell it was a lot of her taste. You know, she was bringing all of those influences, and she she brought them together so well with the Clash and all that. Um, that's fascinating. It's really interesting to hear you talk though about you know you're talking specifically about like drum and bass in Atlanta. Um, you're talking about, you know, electro clash and electronic music in New York, um, and specifically, um, you know, New York being a, like a, a breeding ground for that that movement um, in the in the early '80s. Um, I'd love just to hear your perspective on that, being that you were kind of on, uh, you know, in the 2000s. I'm assuming this was this, this Negro Clash party was in the 2000s, but mm-hmm. in the '80s, that was that that post-punk movement was a a fusion of those of those worlds kind of coming together in a place that could only happen like New York where you've got these cultures kind of coming together where punk music electronic music and funk music are all being fused together was that something that you wanted to highlight with the party or was that something that you were able to engage with that community that had been through that time yeah a thousand percent we were fully influenced by the loft by Larry Levan by that whole aesthetic. Um, and what was interesting about APT, and if you ever talked to a DJ that did anything at APT, that was like a magical anomaly in New York at the time because it was everybody. Like people would just go to APT to hear good music and it was, you know, any night of the week, it didn't matter what night you went, it was gonna be eclectic and it was gonna be really good. So um, yeah, I think, it was just a luck that that happened to be the clientele of APT because it was really hella bougie in there and small. <laughs> <laughs> but it really, it all has to do with, and I don't think enough people talk about how special Alec DeRiguero was and how pinnacle it was to him being that booker and having that vision of, you know, uh, and this was also like just in the beginning of when the meat packing. Okay, so post 9-11, Downtown New York was kind of desolate. People didn't really want to be down there, myself included. I lived in the East Village, and I barely ever went downtown after 9-11. So, but then once um, real estate investors caught wind of, you know, people had kind of vacated and there was all of this opportunity, they started gobbling up all the real estate down there. So... This was at a time where there's so many things happening at the same time. So that was happening. Everyone was kind of having this weird, you know, the the mood in New York was strange at the time. So and then like this bounce back was like the very extreme opposite. It was like debaucherous in New York. People were like (laughs) going out getting wasted because it was like, yo, this shit could go down at any time. Like we're going to war. Yeah. People didn't want the war. New York was weird and you know there was still like for for a long time 
down down by the World Trade Center was just wreckage. It was the air quality was was bad. It was terrible. Wow. So um, based rock music. So we had the Strokes, Chick Chick Chick, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Um, and that whole scene was all happening and it was really cool. And it, they were all getting all this media attention. And so we, I think, were like different, doing something different from that. And it wasn't cool at all. You know, electronic, electro clash and that rock movement was running everything at the time in New York. So we were just like three nerds. And and like I said, we this was just this nod to that post-punk disco era of New York where you had, you know, Blondie and her SNL performance put on the funky four plus one as one of part of her performance. And Fab Five Freddy was curating all of this stuff. We had Andy Warhol and Basquiat and all these worlds colliding, graffiti, hip hop, weird noise, rock bands, like uh, Liquid Liquid or I don't know. It was just everything funky all together. And that's like, we wanted to like recapture that moment again. And then, but just also by naming it Negro Clash, which I still like, I don't know how I feel about it today, the name, but that's a story for another day. But naming it that was intentional because it was like, yo, you're getting all of this attention and you're erasing all of the foundation of the sound that, that a lot of black people created so um yeah i don't even remember what the question was because that was a long crazy tangent but we were definitely influenced by that sound and the djs the whole focus of the night was we would start at one point and just go on a journey we go up and down we would play new hip-hop old stuff experimental stuff and it didn't all have to be you know uh black artists we were also highlighting producers that made like you know jam and lewis, lewis made like some of the funkiest music for the human league like human is mm. a jam so and then again with like again it just had to be like this influence that black people had on electronic music and that's again when you have these festivals popping up and then ignoring all of the you know the innovators of the sounds we were like that's why we have to book larry hurd and it was like larry hurd's first booking in new york the oh, only wow. other time he had performed in new york was a live pa at the paradise garage we had jazzy joyce we had juan adkins we had curtis mantronics we had africa bambata um we had freddie fresh who's this crazy collector and he played all these insane rare uh, jams um cool dj red alert i mean i there every marshall jefferson all of the foundation of so many um electronic genres of music so it was important to us to take our little platform that we did have and um pull up and not pull up, but just again, highlight again, like the beginnings of these sounds because they were ignored. And it's still, if you, I think Kevin Sanderson in 2020, there was an article 
where he's saying like, you know, people are playing the music that I created, but I'm not on these festival bills. Mm. So what's going on? You are called, he called some booker and the booker had no idea who he was. So that was the whole purpose of Negro Clash. I think that's it's a really important thing to to discuss and to and to talk about because it does I mean it makes it hard for everybody to to learn about that stuff and that's actually one of the things I want to talk to you a lot about your podcast which I really get from uh, sorry your show which I get a lot from um, especially you know just even talking about your night you did a a show on your show uh, Black is Black about the beginnings of this night so if anyone who's tuned in right now wants to learn more or, or find out about it I highly recommend checking that episode out because it did really lay that out so well. Um, and, you know, just going back to Santa Gold for a second, is that, you know, as a, as a punk rocker, I think that the same kind of, a lot of the contributions of black people to, to punk music has, has been forgotten or, or not acknowledged as well. And I think about people like ESG, you know, one of my favorite bands yeah. of all time, and like how <laughs> instrumental they are to like the bands that I like, like LCD Sound System and uh, The Rapture and, and, you know, things like that, and, uh, and Santa Gold and, and, um, and how... You know, these, there's like these three ladies from from the Bronx, um, and they're like the coolest band ever. And somehow, um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you know, even uh, who's someone I want to talk to you about later, but um, you know, Bad Brains and and a, a lot of a lot of other people. And it's it's cool. I want to talk about, about a bit about Brad Bad Brains because I want to talk about Swisha. But we'll talk about <laughs> Swisha a little bit later. Um, I just wanted to ask about Negro Clash. Um, what was the best part about having a party that, you know, you really got to control uh, the narrative, musically speaking? Like, for someone who, was, say, wanted to do something similar, you know, what would you suggest? Like, what was the, what was the, the best thing about having that kind of control of starting a night? Everything. I'll, I don't think I'll ever have the opportunity to do that ever again. It was, again... A whole bunch of things all fell into place at the same time. Because like I was saying before, budgets, people have budgets. As soon as 9-11 happened, no company is ever going back to those days. They're all pretending like, oh, you know, this, we, the pandemic, we could never, we can't afford our piddly, you know, like, <laughs> shut up. You all made money. Um, so they did the same thing around 9-11. So you, we, but for a time we did have a lot of money because like we could never, I could never pull Negro clash off. Somebody else maybe could with some sort of sponsorship, but you know, we couldn't afford to do to book those artists. And you know, they were highly slept on at the time. At least now people are starting to talk about some of the like founders of different genres. But at the, at the time we were doing that, it wasn't really, anything anybody was talking about before anybody was talking about Baltimore club. We had DJ techniques before Hollertronics did we did. So shout out DJ technics um, though. We, we got love for DJ technics. So much love. He is such a good dude too. Absolutely. Just like, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't think we could pull off just the money and just being, and people just kind of going along with whatever we put out there. I don't think any two parties felt the same either because like whoever was late or whatever, somebody, a different person was opening. And like I said, we started off kind of mellow so we could play like everything. So, and you know, sometimes I would get into broken beat at the end of the night and then Dwayne and Josh would go off on their crazy disco edits and 
I just don't think, I think people now want to hear exactly what they want to hear. I could be wrong though, because I'm really still not outside yet. So maybe, and I can see that there are some little parties that do exist, but it, it, you do have to spell out to people what it is and they have to know what to expect. And it, a lot of times you have to identify with something that has to do, it, it appears to me that you have to identify with something having to do with that event. And then maybe you could get into allowing the DJ to be creative and just give you what they give you. But that we, I never felt pressure, but also APT was one of the first places to be like, no, you can't make any requests. And, mm. you know, they weren't really trying at the time, like I was saying, bottle service was starting to pop up these clubs that uh, all around ABT in the meatpacking district, it went from like literal meat juice in the cobblestones to like <laughs> <laughs> high rise hotels and like fancy bottle ser service. Um, and so all that dried up literally um, while we were still doing the party and then as the new ownership took over, they had a new booker and you could see that like things had changed and you, so yeah, it was just, Everything about Negro Clash was special. I don't think I'll ever, ever, ever be able to do anything like that again. It was too many like perfect things lining up at the same time for us to be able to do it, including calling the party Negro Clash. <laughs> I don't think that would happen in 2022. I'll have to be honest with you and be completely transparent to everyone who's watching. I was really unsure if I should say that name on... The, See? The, uh, yeah, and I was like, <laughs> I, I called up my friend. I was like, hey, is this, is this okay? I called up Sonny. I was like, hey, man. I don't know if I if I if I'm allowed to say that this and he was like, he, you know he's he, we had a chat so it was good, um, but uh, I, just back about having your own party, um, I was having a, a really good chat with someone just the other day and they were like oh you know, um, you know I don't really like going out to clubs because it's just the same old stuff and I've heard this we've all heard this very many times and Twitter is alight a with you know this kind of conversation these days of what you can and can't play but. Okay. I always thought, <laughs> I always thought that um, it was great that um, that you know you did start a night like this, and you you start you start a, a, a night with this purpose and this intention. And I kind of wanted to really highlight that. I thought uh, the person that was asking me this was like, you know, where do I go to hear music that you know, like the kind of stuff that you're playing or the stuff that we're hearing on Twitch. And I said, you know, I think you really have to manage your expectations, and you need to go to smaller clubs and don't mm -hmm. go to bigger clubs, and you really kind of have to look out for the DJs, follow the DJs and figure out where they're playing, where they're playing the music they love. But guaranteed, you know, places like APT, even even though the, that place doesn't exist anymore, there will be similar places in smaller smaller parts of smaller neighborhoods or something that will probably be, you know, these little like kind of havens of musical culture and musical things that are happening, but they'll be much smaller and harder to find. But I just thought it was really, really great. Um, I, re I really wanted to highlight that for any of the DJs that are that are, that are watching, you know, all the ex all the great nights that I've ever been to have always been started by DJs with the kind of a real intention behind them. Yeah, there's and there's spots in New York and there's parties too. I'm trying to think of like as I was saying that I was trying to ramble off a couple, but I know like um, is it elsewhere that has the outdoor area or the nowadays because I confuse the two of them constantly. I mean, we're going to have to get um, But a... it's actually Justin who used to book at APT owns elsewhere, right? They have like the little food outside. You can be outside. And then there's also the inside. And um, Jada Lorraine is the booker. Oh, nice. I... Is it elsewhere? 
Haven't been oh, to no. New York in a long it's time. It's elsewhere, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so like that's a place where you can pretty much count on the music being good every night. Um, and there's a party called Poppy Juice. There's I'm trying to think of the name of the like lesbian party that's like wild. But again, it's just like the music is really good, though. But I think also, you know, as it's been throughout history, the LGBTQIA plus community have always been at the forefront of pushing and changing and experimenting with music. So it makes sense that those parties, you know, especially I think Poppy Juice is somewhat queer aligned. And this other party is like wild. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it. I think it's interesting, though, like even what you talked about earlier with like, um, you know, taking influence from the loft parties, the loft. I watched a really great documentary about the story of the loft parties, which was mm. so enlightening as a DJ. And I highly recommend anyone check it out, too, because that they really they really talked about that, you know, like David Mancuso's like kind of commitment to what he wanted uh, and he was willing to sacrifice all these things. He didn't want it in a club. He wanted it in a loft and he wanted it, the sound system and he sound yeah you know so important. yeah and i thought that was i thought that was really uh telling that this isn't like a new phenomenon where you kind of need to have your own parties this has always really been the way to do it and like you said you know creating a safe space for people making it welcome making sure you have the right kind of ingredients to a successful en uh, environment for positivity it's like all those things kind of need to be just right um but for it's sure. magic and it's hard to like if you're a DJ for a living and living in New York City, I mentioned before how, you know, APT at the time was just very patient and let things kind of build. And because of, see my tangents, I have to like reel them in because I forget what points I'm making, why I say things. But so I was mentioning, you know, all of this real estate being gobbled up downtown, rising rents were an issue for everybody. So, you know, you couldn't afford to have a party flop even just one night. You have mm -hmm. to move on to somebody who can pack the club. And so a part of like the culture kind of got, gets lost in that too, because, you know, people would come out like house dancers would come out and drink water. They weren't drinking. So, you know, less, there was less tolerance for, you know, making a circle on the floor and like, sprinkling baby powder on the floor and dancing yeah. and not drinking when your your rent is coming due. So, you know, clubs did not have any patience for building up a night where like, yes, we'll have those people and they're gonna come every week and dance. Like upstairs, okay, so I used to take classes at um, Broadway Dance Center and Teachers like Marjorie, Marjorie was a teacher there, I believe. And there's all these amazing legendary dancers that taught at Broadway dance. And they would always encourage students to go out and dance out in the, you know, in the world and just, you know, practice instead of learning these steps, like learn what the dance is, especially when it comes to house dancing and hip hop. And so I remember, oh, they were always on Acalypse's night. I think Acalypse played upstairs when Richard Medina was downstairs. And there were always students I recognized from Broadway dance upstairs, like popping and locking to, to old soul songs or dancing to old soul songs. And I say all this to say, back to the question that you, said, you asked me before, 
it's very difficult to have all those things happen anymore because, you know, I was doing a party at this spot in Brooklyn and they were paying, it was me and Jubilee. Um, and then on also another party I did with um, Nicole from Nina Sky. Oh, and cool. we were always getting shit on by the owners, not making enough money, mm -hmm. but then they wanted to control what we were playing. They didn't like the people who came out. It was just too, and I, my husband, when I met my husband, he owned a bar in Williamsburg. And so I saw the other side of that too, where he was like, well, I gotta pay my rent. But his bar was called Triple Crown and they were also, he was modeling what they were doing off of APT. <clears throat> so they were trying to be patient with and let a party build up because it doesn't just happen overnight. Yep. But a lot of people did not have that type of patience and that's the same now, I believe, you know, where people can't afford to wait for a party to build up and, and you know, have people come up, come and dance and not drink. It's they can't they can't maintain a business like that. So anyways. Yep. I think that's that's exactly uh, Loki. Shout out Loki in the chat for the raid as well. He actually posted up in here. Uh, yeah. Patience, resilience is definitely the hardest part uh, of throwing your own, own events. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and you got to, I guess it's like anything, you got to kind of be prepared to fail to, you know, a couple of times before you, you get a, you get a home run. Um, especially yeah, it takes time. I mean, I think that's just the story of music though. <laughs> the music industry yeah. in a nutshell, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, but was, was there ever a stage in your life where you conformed to a certain genre before you found kind of your own lane? No. And that's probably why. I'm still like floating under the radar till this day. Like, I feel like I have too much. I think about every song that I play, no matter where I'm playing, I have to love it. And like every, anytime, anytime that I play something where I'm like, mm, like, I feel like I'm playing it because I'm supposed to, it always feels kind of gross. I, it doesn't feel authentic. And that's always been like a part of, I think who I am as a DJ is like, this is a shit that I co-sign period. I'm not going to play stuff just because somebody, so many other DJs are playing it. And I think that's been the hardest part of just com committing to being a DJ for a living is like, you know, I have to do weddings. And so like just purchasing some of that music, it, crushes me to like even like contribute to <laughs> what I think is like <laughs> bullshit like it crushes my soul so when I when I do have control over what I can play I'm playing exactly what the fuck I want to play can I curse yeah I mean okay yeah, yeah. so I'm playing exactly what I want to play I don't care and so you know if I bomb I bomb it hurts my feelings, but I'm never going to feel like walk away from a gig and, and be mad at myself for like, I don't know, playing some shit that I didn't want to play. So, you know, that's why I don't get booked all the time, I think, because <laughs> I, I don't know. And, and I also think like the PR marketing side of me, you know, is like, you need to carve out a space for yourself. And so that people know, like when they think of you, they know. But I think about like 
the DJs that came before me that I looked up to, they never did that. Rich Medina, what does Rich Medina play? Yeah. What does DJ Spinna play? Everything that's good. And so that's what I want to create for myself, whether I like blow up and am working everywhere or, or not, you know, it's just, I, I'm like, I'm cool with where I am now too, because I have two kids and like the pandemic is kicking our asses. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm, I have the freedom to like check in and out. I have, if I have to like take time and, you know, give time to my kids that's what i do and then when i have to hustle for money then that that's what i do too so mm. you know i don't i never thought i wanted to be I, I never wanted the pressure of like being a big dj playing festivals for like a huge number of people because i never have played the type of music that's going to please like a sea of people so, I mean, the one time I did that was Afropunk, a sea of black people, period. So, you know, no, I never really conformed. And I started out doing that and it didn't make me happy because there was all this. Like I said, when I moved to New York, I was playing strictly drum and bass. But then I was getting people were passing me CDs with all these unreleased things. And I was like, all this exciting shit is happening. On top of Dilla, we had all of these producers and artists making all this cool shit. And I was like, I'm just gonna play drum and bass. I wanna play that too. So I was even like, when I was still doing drum and bass parties, I would like play, I played like You Got Me by The Roots, just Technically, for that little ending, yeah. anything. I was like, see, this is why I need to just play everything because I don't wanna just play drum and bass. And not enough producers were making enough of the style of drum and bass at that time for me to be playing like, three, four times a night because I was getting tired of the records. So anyways, that was a long, <laughs> that no, was a long tangent. I think that's a really good uh, point though. And I, and I really like to hear, you know, how you've kind of come to come to that conclusion, because I, I do think that's a question that DJs do need to ask themselves, you know, what type of DJ do you want to be? And I do, it's something that like I personally asked myself at one point and, you know, I still ask myself pretty regularly, like, do I want to do this gig? Do, what sort of DJ do I want to be? In fact, I was just talking earlier in, in Loki's chat and I was talking about how, you know, I used to play like top 40 clubs in the, in the 2000s and it didn't make me happy. It did come at a price, you know, for my soul. Like you said, you know, you kind of like, this isn't what I got into DJing for. And obviously, you know, it's financially lucrative and I, and I don't cr discredit anybody who does do that and enjoys it, you know? Yeah, it's a special type of skill set. Like yeah. DJ AM was like, like a exactly. DJ that so many other DJs look up to. And he was really, really good at that. I think, I think that's the thing. And I, and I think, um, you know, obviously when you make that decision and you figure out who you are as, as a person, that's like, you know, that's when you really hit your stride and then you start getting booked for the things that you want to. And that, that it all starts coming mm -hmm. together. You may not get booked as much, but you'll get booked for the things you want. At least, uh, I mean, I don't really get booked, but I love Twitch for, <laughs> for DJ sets for that reason alone, you know? Well, you have a job too. I, have I mean, a job. that and that's yeah. also has to do with why I started doing the show and doing like other like weird things and like the music supervisor lane. I worked for the Fader, and one of the positives of working there, because that place was 
again, and that's for another, another story for another time. But one of the things that I took away from working there was they only highlighted things that they liked. It wasn't about critique. It was about like uplifting and pulling up things that we all liked and we talked about. And it was never like a negativity around the artist. So anytime you open the fader, it was an artist that we liked that we enjoyed. So I was like, oh, I can apply that to me because, you know, um, and that's been what's fun about providing opportunities when I can for, for producers or DJs that I like and putting them on and into these corporate spaces when I have those opportunities. That's awesome. And you, you have a, a background in, you, you're, you did a journalism for, for school. Is that right? Yep. And was that part yes. of your, your job at, at the fader? Yeah, I was a senior associate editor oh, wow. uh, at the fader, but I worked the people that I worked with, went on to do amazing shit. Like Chominati is like running Vogue. Um, Will Welch is at GQ, running GQ. Wow. Alex Wagner is fully a uh, chorus. Uh, I think she has now has her own show again on MSNBC. Um, Nick Catch Dubs started Fool's Gold Records. Um, and then on the marketing side of the fader, which was Cornerstone, um, I'm trying to think of everybody like Jamal Lane is now working. He was at Calvin. He was at Nike. Saida Blount is how I ended up getting the the show at Sonos. Um, Judnick is like fully writing for television now. And so. And, and there's other people who have gone on to do like amazing things that aren't like so flossy, but it was like. And. <laughs> It was that job that exploited young new talent. And then it was a springboard, I guess, but like really they were exploiting people and not paying people enough that were really highly talented. Um, it was probably like gonna burn some bridges there, but I don't care. Cause that's what it is. We gonna I mean, say it plain today. <laughs> they were exploiting young people. And you can tell by where the talent, the level of talent that was there and where they all went from there. So anyways, the whole reason why I was talking about the fader was to say that the positive of that experience was like, oh, you know, I don't need to be a critic. It's always great to just be able to celebrate what I do like and lead the rest of it along. Yeah, I mean, what an all-star cast right there. You know, you've got some. Oh some shit! Of those yeah, people. OP, OP, yeah. sure shot. So much talent came out of the fader cornerstone around that time. Damian Bullock, Anoma Whitaker. So many amazing people, legends in the in the game, in their pers <laughs> in their uh, perspective fields. So um, yeah, shout out OP one time though. Big up OP Miller. Um, that's that's our that's guy right. right there. Always making amazing things happen for us at Serato and uh, for everyone in the music industry. To be honest, um, yeah. Um, but since you were talking about um, your show on Sonos, uh, Black is the Black is Black uh, show. It's such a great, uh, great show and explores the rich history of black music and the many contributions to popular culture. Um, and your last episode, um, which I highly recommend everybody checking out. Um, <laughs> and you can, if you just type in um, exclamation point, follow in the chat. If you're watching on Twitch, it'll pull up a link to the show. Um, the latest show, though, you talk about the saxophone's role in music. And um, it's, it's so fun and entertaining and controversial. And I was talking to, uh, to Sonny James about it because I was playing a while ago, a couple of years ago, I was playing a song. Um, it was uh, a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis produced song. 
I can't remember the name of it, but a big sax solo came out. It was an 80s joint, and he was like, oh, man, you got to skip that joint. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, damn. Um, But it was so interesting, your show, when you started talking about it. You know, uh, you you started explaining about, you know, how it was a really polarizing instrument, the history of it. And um, and then also, like, it was banned at one point by the German and Russian governments. Um, I don't want to spoil it all for everybody. And the Vatican. And the Vatican. I don't want to spoil it for everybody. I highly recommend checking out. But um, can you tell me about your relationship with the saxophone? I mean, I if you've ever watched me stream on Twitch, I um, love 80s R&B so much. I mean, I love the 70s too, but the saxophone for me was also one of those things that's like so cringy. And so I was streaming I can't remember what song I was playing and there was like a full saxophone solo. And I was like, Oh Lord, I forgot to mix out before the saxophone solo (laughs) came in. (laughs) And I was like, but wait, what happened like to the structure of these old R and B songs There's so many times you would have this breakdown to this instrumental solo moment. And a lot of times it was a sax. And then I'm like, but yeah, the eighties, the saxophone had the eighties in a full chokehold. Why? And so that's one of the things that I try to do with the show. It can't be these deep dives because it's only, you know, 10 minutes of talking before we get into a mix. And I was like, this is a good one for the show because I have no idea what happened. I mean, I think I had an idea based on what I know about the music industry and and education because I have kids. So and that's ultimately what it, it boiled down to. But my saxophone, my my history or my the my perspective on the saxophone was like I like it in conjunction with the brass section I don't need the saxophone solo because of and I think you know the 80s it it signified like a sexy moment in film or and and also it was just a a huge trend so much so that we like put forth like solo artists that played the saxophone so it was just they just beat it drove it down into the ground to where nobody even wanted to hear the saxophone anymore, you know? So, but listen to the show. Yeah. (laughs) You can hear like all of that. But now, I mean, and I, and I didn't really, when I went into doing the show, I was thinking specifically about eighties R and B and pop. And I wasn't thinking as much about like jazz music at all. And so that's what, that's when I was like, Oh, we have a good show here because it's not, you know, when you think about a topic like that, it's like, oh, this could be a really cheesy mix. Like, how do I make the mix good? It's not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not one to like make something to be funny. I want to, like I said, highlight what's good. So then I was like, okay, that's how I know I have a show because I can include all of the best moments of the saxophone, the ones that I really love. So that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, you you really did. The the mix actually illustrated the whole story of the saxophone so well over the decades. I especially really liked how you brought it into the '90s, and you you know you you talked you played like Smith and Wesson, Bucktown, and like uh, UNITY, and uh, you know a lot of the, um, the 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 Diggable Planet stuff. And I was thinking, man, I which is I, not a sample. I had no idea. I'm constantly learning shit. I did not know that that was not a sample. The Diggable Planets. Nah, Doggett is not a saxophone sample. Um, no it's, way. oh my God, I can't believe, I can't remember his name, but I'm like sleep deprived. His nickname is like Dog. He's from New Orleans. Wow. Oh. I just always assumed that was a sample. Me too. 
I, mean, I thought it was a sample. It's like a he funky came into the the he came in and also the the vibraphone on that song is also uh, live played Ooh. in the studio. Yeah, I mean that's a beat right there. And then the way you mix Ugh, that into the Amory song, Amory, right? Yeah, Amory's oh. um 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 um. Oh God damn it! I can hear the samples, the um, right air sample. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah, it's okay. I can't remember. I knew I was gonna have to think of things and not be able to remember anything, even the obvious stuff, because that Amory song is my jam. But when we talked a little earlier today, also, um, I wanted to talk about the resurgence. Do you think we'll see a resurgence of the sax anytime soon? And and I was really, uh, we were chatting a little bit about this before we went on air, and I'd really like to to get back to that. I'd love to talk about where you see the saxophone now. Yeah, I mean. In my like little small view of the world, I see like Natasha Diggs celebrating the horn section with Soul and the Horn. Um, and then there are some contemporary artists. We were talking about Masego earlier um, and his song with Devin Morrison called Yams. That's on the mix. It's such a jam. Shout out Devin um, and then on the jazz side, there's like some really amazing, you know, obviously there's Kamasi Washington and there's Nubia Garcia from the UK that are these young, new talents playing the saxophone. But I feel like that's always been cool. The saxophone in the jazz world has always been cool, but we're hearing sprinkles of it. Like I was saying earlier, that song with SZA and Summer Walker has a saxophone. And I'm trying to think, I just heard another song. Oh, well, I'm doing a show coming up on I'm a Piano. Oh, and there's yes. saxophones all over that. Yes. So, but that, again, I don't want to just do... We did one episode like that that I regret that was like, oh, this is Afropop 101. You know, and we talk about how Afrobeats kind of just suddenly appeared in the U.S. But I want to talk about, with these artists in South Africa, more about like... Because, you know, it's kind of their version of hip-hop in a way. Mm. It's their own thing that's created in South Africa. So I want to talk to them about like, what is, what was it like watching Kwaito and turn into gum? I, I know I'm not going to click my tongue cause I'm going to sound crazy. <laughs> um, and um, into I'm a piano and, and what was that childhood like, you know, like for us, we talk about hip hop and there's all these stories about like be beating beats on your desk at, or in the cafeteria freestyling at school or whatever stories we talk about where we're watching this new thing happen. So I want to talk to them and hear from their perspective, what it was like watching this new popular thing become what it is today and what they think the future is, is for it. Yeah. I also checked out that uh, the Afro beats uh, uh, episode. I really enjoyed that too. And I really liked how you talked about the, you know, the, the history of, of African, you know, music and, and Afro beat, music with you know fella and 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 um tony allen and a lot of those songs and then how that you even addressed the confusion that people get when you're talking about afro beats and afro beat and mm -hmm. and it was really it was really good i think um i honestly really enjoyed that episode too and it was great to talk about good. how you know i think <laughs> unfortunately a lot of people just call it like treat africa and they talk talk about it like it's a country and they don't understand that you know like oh, all this yeah. south africa and there's all these different cultures very vast tons of countries all in that big old continent yeah <laughs> well it's... i mean that's i think a huge part of the show that i haven't talked about with you yet is that i don't know 
You know, I was I was born in the Midwest in the United States. I got a very basic public school education that is centered in whiteness and white culture. And so my only exposure to Africa was through whatever was on TV or movies or, you know, National Geographic. So I have in my house, we a popular movie that we watched because my dad was really into nature shows was The Gods Must Be Crazy. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, okay, that's an African and Africa is the this like barren desert and there are animals, beautiful animals, beautiful gowns. And then there's, you know, um, the damn commercials that will come on late night where they would show like starving babies with like flies on their faces. Never did I ever see uh, an image of, you know, a city in a country in Africa ever. I had no idea at all. And even, you know, our maps, Africa was shown, the United States was larger than Africa. If you look at old globes and stuff. So my perspective when I do the show is like, yo, we're learning this shit together because I am not an authority on Africa. And you know, there is a, there is like a diaspora, the, the diaspora wars are real where Africa will check us. And, and I think they have a, a misunderstanding about who and what our experience has been like in the West. Mm. So that's a huge part of the show is to say like, I do not know. And so we're taking this journey together. We're going to learn these things together. So, and it, it's crazy that we would fight because so many across the diaspora, our stories are the same. When mm. I did the show on slang and dialects, I'm like looking at different, you know, drop off points during the slave trade. And it was all the same type of treatment and, and, and resulted in the same things where we had these pigeon languages and, and it all, I, I don't know. It's just the perspective of the show is that I don't know. And so it's, and, but I want to find that connection. What I've not talked about on the show before is living in the Midwest was one thing. It was like, oh, okay. And then I spent some time living in Arizona as well, where it was like, oh, there's this rich Mexican and Native American mm. culture. That's so cool. I wonder, I don't have that. And I was like, just, you know, trying to, so hard to just be comfortable in a white space that I like internalized a lot of racism and, and distance myself as much as possible from being black, just so I could stay sane mm. living in a place where 3% of the population was African-American. And then when I moved to New York, it was like, holy shit, Caribbean food, African food, like all of this rich culture and people having these celebrations of their heritage on days and waving their flag. And I'm like, well, damn, what's my flag? The American flag? Mm, I don't know. So <laughs> this has been like really um, a fun and affirming thing as a African-American person to learn through music, like all of these things that tie us all together in one way or another i think that's one of the best things about the podcast too is how you tell the story through this the the, the music you know and and there's a lot of i mean 
you know, a lot of this history, you know, it, it can be quite upsetting and a lot of it hasn't been docu documented well. Um, and so it's been so great that, you know, someone like myself can learn about that, you know, through the music that I love. And I often talk about that with my friends, you know, like how, you know, through the music I've, I've had the opportunity to, to learn and, and it's made me ask questions about, you know, the little, little kind of seeds have been planted through, you know, a lyric in a song or, you know, they've talked about, you know, the, I don't know, like the Nation of Islam. I had no idea what that was or, you know, something like that. And, and similar to your podcast, you know, in the Afrobeats um, episode, you know, you talked a lot about the, uh, the African diaspora and you talked about the immigration policies of countries changing and how that in influenced that culture and the music that came with it to mm -hmm. influence the pop charts, which was mm -hmm. really fascinating. And I, and I liked how you addressed, you know, like in England, they've been on this stuff for, you know, five, 10 years, but we're only now getting it in North America. And I thought, I can't wait, honestly, I can't wait for your I'm a Piano episode because I find all that stuff just so fascinating. You know, like it's, <laughs> it, that's, that speaks to me on so many levels to try and understand, you know, the world as it is and as it's playing out. And as, cause it's always changing, you know, like, these things yeah. are always changing. This information is always, uh, you know, being introduced. And, you know, to your point, you know, we're all learning and we're all unlearning um, all the time. And, I mean, you know, the great things about podcasts and, and the access to media that we have these days has accelerated that so much. And, I mean, even these days I'm learning things on TikTok. Like I found out about the Holy deepest shit, yeah. river in the world was actually in Africa. And it was like the fastest <laughs> currents. So I was like, this, I don't know how, how legit it is, but I'm... You know, I'm loving, I'm loving that kind of information. You know, they're talking about how California was, you know, at one point there was a river all the way into like Nevada and stuff like this. I'm going on a total tangent, but I'm saying all this to say like. No, this is exactly my style of. <laughs> so now I don't feel so bad when I go on tangents. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. This is unscripted. We just go on tangents. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, what would, what are your intentions with the show? Is, is it when you're, when you're with creating the show, what was. What was the, what's your hope from doing all these episodes? What's your end goal or hope that people take away from the show? Mm. So it's whenever I go through, I talk through my ideas with Saida Blount at Sonos. And she's always saying like, you want to surprise and delight. I love that. So I'm always <laughs> thinking like surprise and delight. And I don't have to be, it doesn't have to be this like, um, super deep dive, right? I just want to spark people's curiosity. And then on our Instagram, we kind of try to include like the visual side of, you know, the discussion there and continue the discussion there. And um, yeah, and hope that people kind of like take the little nugget and, and go on their own little path and, and learning. And I don't know, I think, I hope that I hope, I mean, it's such a little blip. It's such a little tiny wave ripple in the ocean. Um, but whoever's listening, I hope it's like interesting and they like the music and it makes them support the artists and also have a, a better understanding of, okay, so let me backtrack. As an African-American, like I was saying, like I don't have a flag of home. I don't mm. know. So this is our contribution to you know one of the many to to this culture this is our culture we had to create our own so i think a lot of times 
you know, through a lot of the erasure we see in the music industry, um, people forget or, you know, it's in on a broader sense, on a larger scale, like with what CRT is, is like this fake um, outrage over something that's not really being taught in elementary schools. But it, the mm -hmm. ultimate goal is to to smooth over the history of the country and and contributions of people so that some people can stay in power. So when you say CRT, you know, just to spell it out. Critical race theory, oh, right? Oh, critical race theory. Yeah, yeah sorry. Okay. And being in Georgia, it's like a really real insane thing that I, I, I have two kids in school. Oof. So, um, you know, I, I just, all, I, I mean, it's kind of selfish too, because as a DJ, I always want to know the answers. I often like questioning things. I'm playing a song and I'm like, oh shit. Or, you know, somebody will say something in the chat that I didn't know. I see Brainchild, you know, he's always got those little knowledge nuggets. Yeah, shout out Brainchild. I used to look at Brain Brainchild used to have a really good um, blog with like, you know, same kind of idea where it would just be like, just little bits of information about music. And I wanna be that nerd. So there's that, you know, I, I wanna know things that, I, they're often things that I wonder about myself that I end up talking about on the show. Shout out, yo! Shout out the the uh, surprise and delight aspect of of black I as love black as black. I don't, <laughs> honestly though, I think like hip on some hip hop shit. Um, that's like that's like digging for samples. You know what I mean? Like I think about yes. all the joy I got from like finding out that Tribe Called Chris sampled Freddie Hubbard and that was on a CTI record label. I feel the same way when I listen to the Black as Black show. I'm like, oh, I'm getting like all the nuggets. You know what I mean? Like all this yeah. info, and I love it. I just I really thoroughly enjoy that and i've got a, I've, I've got to pull up a, a nugget of dj Lindsay Lindsay's career because um uh -oh. this is something that While i really do this, i'm gonna plug in my i see that my power cord has come a loose and okay. it's not charging so hold on all right hold quick break um but yeah this is this is worth the wait right here ladies and gentlemen Shout out that go Aris. Shout out Jerris and shout out his Danny. Well, we got a whole squad up in here. Little Dave, it's great to have you guys here. We got yeah. Opie I was Miller. trying to look down at the chat to say hi to people. Yeah, we got everyone in here. Mo Sway, Miss Franca, uh, yeah, Brainchild's here. Yeah, it's great to have you guys all tuned in. Thank you so much. Hi uh, everybody. I see Nina. Yeah, Nina's here. Loki, uh, thank you for the raid. Rootsman, greetings. F Varel. Manila Ice, Corporate Daniel. Hey. Uh, <laughs> so the question I wanted to get into, um, and it's come up a couple times in Twitch streams, so let's get into it now. Um, you played in Christian McBride's band, The Situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, so I had a couple years ago, I was like, okay, I'm going to start talking about myself and things that I've done more often. Just because, I don't know. <laughs> You've done some cool stuff, I thought Lindsay. it was going to like help with my career. Cause I've always just like, I'm like, I'll just let what I do speak for itself and I don't need to talk about myself. But then Miles, my husband is always like, no, you have to be, you have to let people know all the Shout cool out things Miles. that you do. That's Shout a, out Miles. That's, that's, that's a good, a good partner right there. Yeah. He's always pushing me out of my comfort zone, which I guess is good, but <laughs> <laughs> uncomfortable. Cause here I am talking about myself. <laughs> 
But yes, I was. I was in the Christian McBride situation. Typically, they work with DJ Logic and um, Jahi Jahi Sundance. Um, But Jahi was doing, he was working on his own album at the time. So he was like, Lindsay, you'd be perfect. Just, Just say, yeah, just do it. So we did a bunch of dates at the Blue Note. Um, and then we did, I'm going to say the wrong festival, Montro, I think it was. Um, and I got to meet Angela Davis, which was fucking wow. insane. I probably sound like an idiot because I was like not expecting to see her there. And then I, I was like a mush mouth. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was an interesting experience because I don't scratch. So I was like, what? what am I providing to this? But I think that's what's interesting about jazz is it's about like improvisation and textures and like building on each other, vibing off each other. And that's basically what each session was. So um, Jahi kind of gave me some basic ideas of what to do. And I was like, I already know what I'm going to do. I'm going to include, and this was in 2019 in the summer. Um, so things were kind of building up to what in, ultimately erupted in 2020. So I used all of these speeches about blackness and about, I think this was before the election too, it was coming up. So about, you know, power structures and how, you know, the game is rigged to kind of make us fight with each other while they do the dirty deeds in the dark kind of things. So, you know, Fred Hampton speeches, Nina Simone interviews, Richard Pryor stand-up. I feel like I used something from Watt Stacks um, from Richard Pryor. Every night it was different and I would use different, you know, um, spoken word and speeches as textures in certain parts of certain songs. And then I was responsible for the, the intro as everybody walked in. And so that's when I would like highlight the most important spoken that I thought the message that people needed to hear. (laughs) And then, um, you know, I added different samples. Logic was scratching in samples. It was really scary um, because, you know, the people in the band are legends. So it was scary to like, I don't know, put myself out there and try something that was different for, I, I'm not a producer. So but yeah, on, it was, but int- you, it was really, you know, getting to stand on the stage with these people was crazy. Absolutely. Um, and one of the people in the band, um, I've heard was Patrice Russian. Is that correct? Yes. Patrice Russian, who is the sweetest woman on planet earth. She is. I, I've, She's I've, wonderful. And like, I don't know. I, it's still like surreal to even talk about because I was like texting with her. I don't. I don't know. It's just weird. It's weird because she, she just like regular, very. I mean, she's not like a pop star either, and I don't know if. I mean, she has to know. She has to know that she's like a legend. People like recognize her as a legend, but yeah, I think definitely. she's just very like, whatever about it. Just very, I don't know. She's so cool. <laughs> she is so cool. She is so cool. Cause I mean, she's one of my favorite artists ever. I mean, I've done like a, a tribute to her. Like, uh, 
I mean, she's the songs she's written are, and her career is so so accomplished. And you know, I went on Wikipedia one time. I was like, let me just Wikipedia Patrice Russian, and I was like, wow, like this. She is a living legend. Like she's like on Quincy Jones level. She's done like Grammy stuff. She's like that's what uh, I was gonna say next. Like she's also done behind the scenes like music. I forget what you call the the position or what you do for the Grammys, but she basically like put together all the music for the Grammys for a few years. Yeah. What? It's insane. She's amazing. Yeah. And then Ron Blake was on the saxophone. Let me not leave everybody out. Christian McBride already is like that dude on the bass. Um, And then Allison Williams was uh, the singer who, I mean, she sang backups for everybody, everyone, BBQ and band, Bobby Brown. Uh, she sang the, she's singing the hook on basketball by Curtis Blow. And then she had her own, you know, album where she had a sleep talk, I think was her hit off of her own solo project. Um, so, you know, I, sur- surreal, like I really, it's hard to find the words cause it still feels like it didn't happen almost just being around those people. And they were just like, so warm and so welcoming. And then like, the green room was crazy of people coming in the green room and my mind was exploding. And like, I was hiding in the room, like, cause I didn't know what to say to people. <laughs> it was crazy. So that was cool. And then COVID happened. And so I don't know, Damn. you know, people are just now starting to get back into things. And like, I'm sure Jahi, if he was there before me, if he's available, but he's doing so much stuff with, um, Oh, Oh no, I'm not thinking of the name of the artist, but he's another jazz artist that is cons. He's been doing a lot of stuff at the Blue Note also, Robert Glasper. Wow, that's awesome. Um, now you've also done, uh, you've also played in other bands too. Like uh, I saw in your in your in your um, your biography, you also uh, played in the Rapture. Is that right? I sang backups on the, the second Rapture album. That's mm-hmm. incredible. I wasn't in the band. you're on record though that's better yeah yeah yes i'm on the record and then i sang um on um beans's album but i can't think of the the album he used to be a part of anti-pop consortium yeah and um I, I sang with a song with Eliasco Bar. We did two songs together. We worked on another project that we never finished. I worked on a project for years with the Twilight Tone. <laughs> but that also, there's one song that we did put out, um, but I'm just singing like backups on it. So, you know, the music industry doing what it does. That's so awesome. I mean, just, I mean, those, uh, those credits are insane though, you know, just to, I think about those those artists that you've worked with. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'd be like you. I'd be, a, I'm, what do you say, mushmouth? <laughs> I wouldn't be, able to, wouldn't yeah. be able to talk to them. I didn't know what to say to anybody. Because, like, you know, everybody says, like, You're, you meant so much to me. I was like, I don't want to, like, be annoying. Like, I'm back here with y'all every day. <laughs> I don't want to be annoying. So we, like, talked about wine or our kids or whatever, you know. And it you was said, very regular. You also... uh You've also DJed, obviously, for a, a lot of cool events. Um, you, you mentioned you played at Afropunk, uh, and uh, you have a relationship with DJ Rashida, who's Prince's DJ, and you've also DJed for Prince? Mm-hmm. Rashida's the reason why I DJed 
for a prince. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what she was doing in L.A. Because, like, I guess, like, after a while and, like, he he was, like, just a very, like, down-to-earth. He wasn't, but he was, like, a down-to-earth kind of guy. So, you know, I think it probably was, like, I don't want to go to New York this time. She had already been DJing with him for so long. Um, so she called me one day and was like, hey, um, do you want to do – I think it was the – it was like a when he did a book release again. This is again so surreal. I was like, "This is not really happening." He did two nights, and he this is when he had first started doing like his songs with the cusses in them again, stuff that he oh, okay. hadn't done for years. Like after, oh, what was the name of the artist? Tay Tamar, not Tamar. That's Braxton. What was the name of the woman that he was really pushing? Brown uh, skin girl, brainchild. You know. Yeah, I'm not. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I DJed that event. It was two nights. And then I just, he would just hit me up when he was in New York and he like on a date or I don't know what he, if he was on a date or not, or, you know, one night he booked out butter and like I was in the bed. My head was wrapped in a doobie and I had no makeup. Like I was sleep, 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 sleep. And they were like, yeah, so can you come to Butter in like an hour? Yes. So it was like Dolce & Gabbana, Sienna Miller, um, Versace's daughter. Not Versace's daughter, but uh, uh, yeah, Donatella. Is it Donatella Versace's daughter? The really skinny girl. Um, And Sienna Miller was dating Jude Law and um, Hall Harris and like Maxwell. And that's it. Wow. And he was like, okay. He came up to me and he was like, okay. So, and I was playing records and I had Serato. Another tangent that I won't go on. I'll skip that tangent. But Serato, he had a CD of new music that he wanted me to play. And nobody from Butter's staff was there. And it was like all these components. And I was like, how do I play a CD just over the main system? But then I ended up sliding that CD into my little power book my 12 inch power book, but mostly records. So he came up to me and he was like, "Um, do you have a pen? And I was like, yes. And I like tried to hand him a pen. He was like, no girl, you write. (laughs) What am I writing? What what do you want? So he gave me like an idea and Rashida had already told me from before, like, hey, don't play no songs with no cuss words. Um, He prefers live instrumentation. I can't remember what the other things were. Um, And I kind of knew there was beef there with him and Rick James. So I was like, I don't know if that's still a thing. So I will avoid Rick James. Um, So I played, I remember playing. Oh, so the songs that he picked, he picked um, Float On, which was odd. Yes. Um, It's a jam. Get Off by Foxy. Oh, what else? God damn it. But I played um, Loving You by Johnny Guitar Watson, and he was leaving when I played it. And he turned around and came back like, what is this? I was like, you know what this is. Uh, (laughs) But I played, while he was still there, I played The Big Payback by James Brown. He does not say, motherfucker. He mumbles it. He says, beware you mum. He doesn't say the word fucker. 
but he really was trying to clock me on the oh, the big damn. payback. He was like, mm, he came up to the booth like. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he would just call in the middle of the night. And maybe that was the thing for Rashida. She was like, I'm not brand new to this. And I don't want to go to New York, you know, in an hour. I'm wow. tired of, you know, being on call. And I wasn't. I was like, whenever you call, I'm getting up. I'm taking out these clips, taking this this bonnet off, doing a quick little beat, and I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've heard similar stories the way when he's on tour, he just kind of pops up. He's like, I want to do an after party now. And he'll just go late. Buy someplace out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was buying out Norwood a lot, too, at the time. Yeah, I'm really bummed out. I feel like I had an opportunity and I never got to see him live. And that was like, it was one of my regrets for sure. Um, but, you know, yeah, what a legend. That's such a great story, though, just to be able to have that, that such a close, you know, relationship like like that, have that experience. Wow. Special. Yeah, I mean, that I was like, I could hang it up right now today. Yeah, <laughs> right. Good. I've done everything I need to do because literally like it's funny for Christmas Miles got me the purple rain poster because that shit was on my wall like I was in my room with the door closed like making up routines to like computer blue that was my childhood prince I wanted to be Wendy and Lisa I wanted to be Dr. Fink I was obsessed so you know I don't know it was like yeah, like I said, I could hang it up after that because that was it. That was everything. More, I think, at a certain point, more than Michael Jackson because then it was like Morris Day and Vanity and Apollonia, all Sheena Easton, all of the surrounding, Sheila E. That was my world right there. I wanted like a swooping, wavy, you know, like asymmetrical with a long trench coat with pyramid studs. Yes, and that's I had the look. none of those things, but that was my who I wanted to be. Period. That look, man, that look is just so good. I was watching. Um, mm -hmm. I we have so I I have title and I watch the music music videos on title, and they have all these oh. Prince music videos because he has his catalog on there now. By the way, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to ask you a question about this a little bit later, but they also have oh. the originals, all the songs that he wrote for other artists, but his mm -hmm. demo versions or his versions of them. And anyways, he was doing. Uh, I listen to that all the time because it's so good. He was doing uh, a, a song off con uh, the con uh, the controversy album. What's that one? Dur is it Dirty Mind? No, no Dirty controversy. Mind the album. album. Anyways, mm -hmm. he's he's dressed in that that trench coat with the stud like the the, the with the, the panties on and the panties and the boots. <laughs> and I'm like, this look. I'm saying with all this taco meat. <laughs> yeah, it's a strong look right there. You no know, people did not know what to do with that man. They didn't know what to make of him. <laughs> That's incredible. So the question I have for you, and, and we're, mm -hmm. this is gonna, we're gonna. I'm we're, scared. I hope I have an answer. <laughs> no, no, it's really simple. What is what is the your your favorite Prince record? Oh, oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I have to say, I guess Purple Rain. That was the the entry point for me i mean i went back and learned about everything else but purple rain was that girl for me so still like yeah it's a no skipper yeah no skips but i mean i don't know i don't know 
so many everything all of them because even the newer stuff i was into so that's a really hard one yeah yeah i know it's it's a tough one um I mean, he's got so many jams and, and I feel like at different points in your life, they speak to you in different ways too, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I discovered like the self-titled album much later on and I was just like, this, mm-hmm. he made this in two weeks or something. Oh, yeah. Like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> and stayed having the best blowouts of any black woman or man on planet Earth till till the final days. <laughs> just laid, edges laid. <laughs> <laughs> So I got to I I wanted to ask um you know what's what's a a song or a series of songs right now that are really you want if you want if someone was to ask you what do you want what what's DJ Lindsay listening to what's something that you want to put on Yes okay so I had to write them down because uh, like I don't trust my brain But so a matrix and DJ let me make sure I say his name right Ma Parisa it's an Ama Piano song because I've been listening to nothing but Ama Piano in preparation for making the mix for the show. And it's a song called Drop Line. And it's like everything I love about like what is coming out of these African countries right now. Like you got a little dance to do when a song comes on. But it's like a really, it's got like, a, it's just a soulful but not too pretty kind of grimy song coming out of Ama Piano right now. All right, let's run that real quick. Uh, it's six minutes and fifty-one s- seconds, so we're not going to be able to get the whole th- whole thing. So I'm going to skip. It's a slow burn to get yeah. get, get to the middle because you know the Ama piano is structured kind of like house, where it's like little elements come in for the first like two minutes, two and a half minutes before you get to the juicy bits. Yeah, so we're going to drop it. Let's drop it at like one forty-four and see what happens. Also, we got to be careful with the DMCA takedowns. So. Oh, that's right. But if you play this on a good system, that's the bass. Oh, yeah. I love that South Africa was like, okay, we're going to take this down. We're going to take this tempo down for you. I know everybody wants to live in 120, 130 BPMs right now, but that's not what we're doing over here. (laughs) Yeah. The little dance is cute too because it doesn't require a lot of effort. OP knows it. OP stays up on the South African uh, bangers. good system and it knocks y'all it's a banger i promise certified absolutely um the baseline and i'm a piano music blows my mind like the the way that they the rhythm of it the frequency it's like asmr you know like the yes wow i love that they're just like it's just its own thing too like it's not you could tell when somebody's trying to make a club banger 
And like, this is not trying to always be that. It's like, they'll have like a little cool down period and it will last for a moment. Like, it's not like a quick one just to build up the anticipation for like another explosive big thing. Like, it's like, no, this is how we structure on piano and it's just vibes, period. We're not trying to do this for any other reason, but this, I don't know. I like that there and they're really gatekeeping it. They're really like pushing for like, if you're gonna do I'm a piano set or if you're gonna have a I'm a piano party, then come book somebody from South Africa mm. to come and play if you can, because this is our shit. I feel like Georgia and Guilty Beats did a song and there was this whole thing. I saw. Where South African Twitter was not having it. And then they released an official remix with a South African producer just out of respect. And I was like, that's what needs to happen. You know, like I was talking before about erasure and I did a wedding recently where they were like, can we get um, Justin Bieber Despacito? And I was like, see, there it is. Can I get Justin Bieber um, Essence? There it is again. Like that's not a Justin Bieber song. And I, it takes everything for me to not correct people. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like that's what's kind of necessary. I love that about this moment where South Africa is like, this is us. So don't just come and take this away. You know, like that's been the whole history of this continent. Don't don't continue. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was re reading some of the comments in here and they were just like, yeah, this is our music. And I, I love it. It's, you know, it's their music. Mm -hmm. And I, and, mm -hmm. I do, and as a producer, as someone who makes music, you know, it's very tempting to go, I want to learn how this is made. I want to break it down. I want to do my own version what of it. What are the sounds? How do yeah. we? Yeah. Um, cause and it, I don't I, think they really have a problem with that. They're just like, if you know, just, just remember that this is, I mean, it'll be in the show. It'll be in the show. Yeah. And I, but I do think that, you know, it's, it's nice, honestly, for the first time, like that those discussions are happening where, you know, as someone like myself who makes music, has to consider like, what am I doing here? Am I, am I contributing anything? Like, what am I just taking away? And what happens if I get famous for this and I, I take an opportunity away from somebody else? And it's, mm. it's really important. It's, it's great that we're actually having those discussions because for a long time, yes. you know, people mm -hmm. just did it. And we've seen that happen with lo-fi. I mean, we even saw it, you know, we've, it's like you said, it's, it's not, it's not a new thing at all, but it's very important mm. to acknowledge. Um, mm -hmm. So, Got, we got one one of I, we had three we had three picks from from DJ Lindsay. Let's get into <laughs> let's get into another one. Uh, so this one is "Love to Groove" by Kush Jones. Do you have it pulled up? I'm the one. I do. You, you should probably should have said because you're no, no, I got controlling it, yeah. the screen. We're good to go. But here. I'm really into Juke Bounce work. Um, and so I wanted to use one of my songs to highlight some new jacks. Um, I love that they are unapologetically just making electronic music and, you know, I feel like pretty often on their social media and whenever they can, they talk about how that's black music. Um, and, you know, and also that whole crew and, and they're like friends. So like DJ Elise, we talked about, shout out um, DJ Ace Elise, MoMA, yep. um, they're always talking about like their worth. I tried to license a song from Ace Mo and you know, the budget wasn't, wasn't good. I said up front, I was like, I know this isn't a good budget, but I just wanted to see if you had something. And he was like, nah. And I was like, I respect that because 
so many young artists like and it's like when we talk about I'm going to get political but when we talk about like wage wages and what the minimum wage should be and that oh only young people make the minimum wage it's just for like fast food workers and it's like yeah but now listen to y'all complain when there's you know you're you're waiting too long in the drive through because there's not enough people to make minimum wage young people need to make money too so like no we don't just throw away minimum wage as something that's sh something shitty that young people have to tolerate they need to get paid too and so i think i respect that when it comes to producers and djs where they're like this is how much this is my rate and that's it like you want this this is sauce you want it right so you gotta pay just like if you were looking for somebody who's been around longer than me. So I want to elevate Juke Bounce work and the artists on that roster and the, you know, a lot of the artists that they end up um, putting on those collaborations that they put out on, um, on, oh God, <laughs> I almost said Beatport, but it's not Beatport. Bandcamp? What is it? Help me. Bandcamp. So, you know, they put out these huge compilations on Bandcamp and it's all these dope ass young producers. So support them on their Bandcamp page. And yeah, this is Love to Groove by Kush Jones. Awesome. Shout out DJ Swisher too. We'll talk about Swisher right after this. Yep. Too much, not too much. I love it. <laughs> That's that surprise and delight. Right, right. So we're just giving you a taste. Definitely got to go uh, cop that. He's not giving you the full pie. You get a slice. <laughs> you get in these beats, you get a little bit of them chords, and then I take them away. Because, like, if I give you all of it, it's too sweet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, like, what these guys are doing, and, and Vibe Town with uh, DJ Elise, man, I learned a yeah. lot of great tunes from her as well. Um, she's uh, Nina just mentioned she started a stream, so maybe we'll raid into her after this. Yes, uh, let's raid Elise. Yeah. I love her. And I see... Um, uh, OP mentioned uh, just before we were talking about with the Alma Piano, we talked about AQ. Shout out AQ um, out of New York. Uh, she just dropped a splice pack too, which is really great. Um, oh, dope! And that's and that's focused on on Alma Piano. Yeah. So yeah, it's really cool to see like you know these these things happening. Uh, yeah, and she's doing yeah, that's right. She's doing a Serato video soon. She's using Serato Studio. Uh, shameless plug for our software. Um, if you haven't used it and you want to make beats, get Serato Studio. Uh, but yeah, AQ got great energy. Um, and uh, yeah, Kush. So Swisher, the reason why I want to quickly talk about Swisher, because Swisher is part of the Juke Bounce work crew and with uh, Ace Mo, Kush, DJ Elise, and many more. Um, Swisher's father 
is in Chuck a trees. Yeah. Bad brains, right? Yep. Bad drummer. Brains. But the he drummer. also worked a little bit with Stift. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Tell you. <laughs> find find all the Santi interviews because it's it's way deeper than just Santi Gold. She's like <sighs> Yeah. But I won't give up on it because I don't want no more cease and desist from Santi. <laughs> <laughs> I also, while we're on it though, I also got to give a quick shout out to my homie uh, Rufio, um, who also played in Santi, Santi Gold's band. And uh, Rufio also played in TV on the radio, and he was in the Death Set. And I got a lot of love. I didn't for know he was in the Death Set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from what from what I understand, Rufio, shout out Rufio if you're if you're listening, and his uh, he's got his new hot sauce. Jamama's hot sauce is his new new project, and he just got all married. the hustles. Yeah, we got a love. We got a lot of love for Rufio too. So the last selection, though, we you you brought up, and I think it's really cool because it kind of ties back to the saxophone ep- episode. Mm-hmm. Um, your last your last choice of records that you. And my really last want. choice is the full hearsay album by Alexander O'Neill. I'm trying, you know, I just there's all these songs I grew up listening to. And then I took songs off of these albums and sometimes I'll play them, but like, I want to go back and listen to full bodies of work again. I feel like DJ Tara was doing this too. Cause there's like songs like, Oh yeah, I totally forgot about, you know, whatever song. So I'm going back and like unlocking some like childhood memories by listening to all these old albums that my parents listened to around the house and stuff. So, but this one is just another one. There's no skips. What a fucking amazing voice team with him and Jam and Lewis, just everything. And, and I watched the unsung with him and Sherelle and it still like breaks my heart that like, you know, his career didn't go. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's locked in, in Amber mm-hmm. <laughs> for me. Cause like after a certain point, it there was nothing else to, to have, I guess. And like, because of his substance abuse, abuse, I don't know if his voice is what it used to be anymore. So, you know, I don't know I love that. This album. Whole thing. You know what though? Uh, I just want to add one thing to the Alexandra O'Neill story. <laughs> I found out very recently on Instagram. Uh, shout out Mad Skills. He brought this this to my attention that Saturday Love. I think yeah, Saturday Love with Alexander O'Neill and Chevelle is the same verse twice. Mm-hmm. They just, one sings it in and the other person sings it. Yeah. But they're on. fully, in this song and in um, Never Knew Love Like This, there's this kind of like running dialogue that they're kind of having throughout the song with ad-libs and stuff. I love them. They had, so they were just, ugh. I didn't know that Chevelle was, was like, not a, like a round the way girl though. She was like, she had money. She came for money. Oh. But she kind of had this like around the way aesthetic. But she was, she was not. I, I really like Sherelle. A little bit of money. Yeah. Me the, too. The, 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 actually the sax song that, I, that was, was trying to get skipped was uh, Fragile. And I think Brainchild mentioned mm. it in the chat too. And there's a massive sax solo in that. So we, 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 we should, we're, we're on a tangent here. I'm going to play. Uh, Sunshine, because I I pulled this up um, to listen to in advance. I don't have this record, I, I gotta admit. So it was really pleasant for me to listen to this song and go, oh, well, of course. So, I know. 
I know this. Yeah. So, so let me, hopefully this, someone else may have that similar experience when I play this song for you all. Fire intro there. Child on the backups. Sing it, Rachel. <laughs> Motherfucking jam. The whole <laughs> album. Everyone. Put it in your queue. I can't go all day without my sunshine. And there you have it. Um, so obviously, for those of us who were a bit late to this one, obviously you rec- you probably recognize that 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 chorus from the Jay-Z song, Jay-Z, Foxy Brown, right? Foxy Brown? Um, I don't know. I was not really into Jay-Z during this era, so I'm <laughs> yeah. not the authority. This one definitely had a, a, a interesting Twitter thread going on the other day. A lot of, a lot of people talking about how this song was uh, not their favorite. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brainchild. I saw that thread. Yeah, that was a spicy one. Oh, yeah, it was Babyface. You're right. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't be remembering stuff unless it was like really my shit and at that time i feel like i was like turning my nose up at jiggy (laughs) hip-hop yeah but now i look back at it and i can appreciate it but at the time i was like i like electronic music oh yeah there we go uh brainchild that's what it was got jay-z to admit that this was his worst video (laughs) hey man (laughs) and foxy brown was on the track okay i'm not i'm not completely wrong yeah it was a tough time okay that was a tough time. Uh, people definitely, it was a polarizing time in rap music, uh, if, especially if you had a shiny suit or you're a puff daddy. Uh, that fisheye lens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that fisheye lens, that Hype Williams budget video. They mm-hmm. don't do those anymore. Um, but It's um, funny, I was just talking about the, um, I did a playlist for somebody and I had to like talk about why I chose the songs and I talk about um, before I moved to New York, I saw the um, uh, my memory. But there was a Busta Rhymes before um, got you all in check video. Then the beginning, they're like in a forerunner, I think. And they're just wilding out. And I was like, this is what New York is. I'm driving through Times Square. It's a fish eyed lens. Like everything is shiny and 
bright. And I was like, this is why I want to move to New York. Because everybody, like I had met some dudes from Brooklyn that had like gold fang fronts. Ooh. And I was like, this is so fucking cool. Like, that's why I want to move to New York because everyone is cool like this. <laughs> that Absolutely. video was like, that Hype Williams video was like, this is it. Oh yeah, that I just was life changing. I those moments where I would see something from New York and be like, "See, that's where I'm supposed to be." <laughs> it had the same effect on me in New Zealand. I tell you, I watched that on Max TV, presented by Zane Lowe, and I wanted I wanted to do the same thing. Um, and speaking of, uh, just to bring it back to your your show, Black is Black, you have another uh, an episode about Afrofuturism too, and I I think that's mm. a really great, uh, real quick tangent just to talk about Buster Rhymes and Hype Williams' videos. Uh, did you talk about that in in the video and the on the show to talk about like the imagery that he was kind of portraying in that? No, we didn't talk about it on the show. I talked to King Brit, who has a class at UCSD called Blacktronica, and it's all about you know the musical side of of the practice of Afrofuturism. And I really wanted to because I had talked about doing a show on Afrofuturism and a couple of people kind of turned their nose up at it. And I was like, I don't know. I still think it's like necessary. I mean, it, definitely it's still something necessary that we need to discuss and like look at things from that perspective because we're still struggling for, and representation is not the only aspect of, of everything, but it is like something that we do need to take into consideration. So that was the whole topic of the show was like more generally do we need to still talk about afrofuturism is this something that we still need to discuss when we talk about music so listen to the episode but no and there's been tons of people talking about how you know we have been giving a lot of props to missy for being innovative but we don't talk as much about buster rhymes videos in particular so i have seen people having that discussion but he really doesn't get his props i think like you know the beefed up brolic buster rhymes being so still like kind of around now kind of maybe is why people don't talk about you know his work in the 90s i'm not sure yeah you know? it's a shame though i mean yeah I even like at work we were just chatting about you know Bust Rhymes albums and people some people were saying oh, I don't know if there's really like he's not really a good album rapper I was, I was like I strongly disagree with that mm. uh, you know like I'm a big fan of a couple Bust Rhymes albums I, I admit they're not all amazing you know and but uh, you know like even the later ones the Big Bang Theory with you know that was I listened to that front to back I love that record yeah. and, and I do agree um, you know Missy and Bust Rhymes you know videos those were the ones that were so impactful at that time you know and for sure. Yeah. I mean, Changed. but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like people, I, I don't really know the answer to that one because people are just so fickle and so quick to forget. And like I said, because Buster Rhymes is still like in everybody's face, kind <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. Yes. <laughs> maybe it's like harder for people to like look back. You know, people don't like to really talk about artists until they die. So maybe that's the thing. I, I don't really Damn. understand um, I, I just want to quickly talk, um, you know, you're right. Yes. Jairus was like, let's not forget that, you know, let's not forget leaders of the new school. I've been meaning, okay. What's the name of that podcast? I've been listening to what had happened was with, um, Dante Ross, 
but there is, I think, a dedicated issue talking about with Dante talking about leaders. And I can't wait to get to that episode because I don't really know much about like I remember there was like an episode of like Yo MTV Raps where they like literally split up during the middle of this episode. But I don't really oh, know a lot of the backstory. Yeah, I'd like to. I got to check that out. Dante Ross. I'm sure he's got some some gems there. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And he's like eating for part of the episode, one of the episodes. I was like, <laughs> we should do that on here. We should You're have like chewing. <laughs> I could like just like, a, like New York nonchalant dude. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so just speaking of your move from New York City to Atlanta, um, you know, mm. let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, how has that move impacted you musically? Because, you know, obviously, you know, Atlantic's music scene has become so influential in the last decade or so, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think in my, I lived in Atlanta for a little while before I moved to New York. And again, like I said, like it was just so special. And I think it was just a time and you know, okay. So we moved here right before the pandemic. So I haven't really gotten a good idea of what's going on because I've been in the house. But I know, you know, Ash Lauren is here. Kai is here. Carl Injects had the sound table, but that closed in the middle mm. of the pandemic. Um, Pierre Future was here and also had a club here that closed. MJQ is still here and kind of supporting some different stuff here and there. But like, there's not as much popping as it used to be. It's just very different. It's like a lot of like hookah smoking and brunches here that I have perceived from inside of my home in the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> so don't come for me because I really am saying I don't know. But what I've been able to see is that there are like big events, like work crew here is busy and they do um, the groove, which is an all R&B party. That's like they sell the tickets out and fit pack this huge space, which is also why I have not gone to it. Um, and so there's stuff happening, but I can't, I mean, I still just fly to New York for work because, you know, like I said before, I don't play trap and I don't, I'm not a part of the work crew. So, and I haven't been able to kind of get my footing because we've only been here through COVID really. So, but we just, cause living in New York was not sustainable for us and how we wanted to live with two kids, um, navigating New York's public school system is its own full-time job. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was like running into issues with New York nightlife for a while, just trying, like I was saying, like trying to throw parties and if they didn't pop off immediately, like having to pivot or go to different venues, like me and Nicole, the owner of this one bar in the West Village got physical with us one night. Oh, it was man. really just a lot of things that built up to um, us deciding to leave because you know, New York was kicking our ass. So, which I'm not embarrassed to say, <laughs> New York is a tough place. And we had two kids. I would love to raise my kids in New York City. I feel like Henry, my oldest, is like the weirdo that he is because he was raised around all of the people that we are, were around in New York. You know, New York parents just kind of incorporate your kids into what you do every day. So we were going to shows and stuff with Henry. 
Um, and you can see the difference between Henry and Amel is my four-year-old and how, you know, growing, having spent time in New York and not what the difference is. So, um, you know, I don't know. We'll see. But for now, I've just kind of switched to doing the show, trying to do as many like creative things with, with like music supervision, um, and then fun gigs that I really want to do, I fly up to New York to do. And then as much as possible, I love playing on Twitch. It's we love like, it when you do too. Uh, I love it. It like, it pulls me up into like a happier place. Cause like right now I have my head down and I'm just like grinding, but it just feels like what as close to what that, what I was explaining about APT it's as close to that as possible because like nobody is expecting like a full on dance party. They just want to, you know, hang out. It's like having people over almost and like engaging with people and seeing the same people, you know, coming back and talking and getting to know people and, you know, watching DJs play that are from all over the world is also like, I just feel like it's like a regrouping for me. So I, I really love um, some aspects of, of being here because it's kind of forced me to be picky and like, you know, be more like those young artists that I was talking about before and just saying like, well, this is my rate because like I'm not going backwards and I'm flying yeah. in New York to spend money. Totally. <laughs> I got to make some. So it's forcing me to only take jobs where I get paid what my rate should be. It should be, you know, I've been a DJ for, 20 plus years so you know i should be able to get paid a certain amount but you know being a woman in a very male-driven industry can have its challenges so here i am i'm in atlanta where my cost of living is just it's cheaper and we have a little more space to spread out because like i wouldn't be able to do this in my in an apartment in brooklyn we, i'd be in the living room when you know the kids toys all all around me <laughs> <laughs> well we're so lucky to have your streams on twitch um yeah like i said they're one of my favorite shows and i learned so much from them i'm always Thank train you. spotting and getting cool tracks from you um so we we really appreciate that um and of course once again you know your show black's black is a real gift to the you know the musical world pop culture world you know the Thank world of music you. um what can we look forward to in the future with DJ Lindsay? Is there anything you got coming up you want us to, you want to let us know about? Um, you know, I've really been because of this pandemic, I've been really focused on my kids and making sure that they're okay. Um, um and just, you know, working hard on the show and trying to see like if that's like a pivot I'm really going to make because like really how I don't know if I don't know, you know, like I'm getting older. And so what does that mean? You know, like I don't see that. Men, there's lots of men um, who fully have a full career as DJs and into their older years, mm -hmm. but I don't see a lot of women that are really busy. And like, I don't know if, you know, life on the road it's a lot of like pieces to put together and i guess i'm just kind of waiting to see what the world looks like um when or if 
things settle down, you know, what's the new world going to be like? And so then I'll try to figure out what my place is in it or what kind of hustle I have to do to like make sure my kids are okay. I think that's really the main focus. And then like in the meantime, not doing anything goofy for money to like tarnish anything that I've done before now. So if that means I have to like work, you know, behind the scenes, you know, stuff, as long as it's music related, like I'm good. So that's been the the focus for now. And then getting on Twitch as much as possible because it just makes me happy. It's like, you know, I can just be selfish and play stuff. And then if people come, they come. If they don't, then I practice for two hours. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I got I got two more questions for you because I feel like we've taken up a lot of your time already and it's three o'clock here. So it's got to be pretty late for you guys. Um, but O.P. Miller had a question for you and he wanted to ask, okay. um, how did that track you did with uh, Jack come together with the Twilight Tongue? Oh, OK. Um, so we started working on that project. When was that? Like 2004, five. And I was like, yo, I love, I've always loved the same shit. I'm very predictable. So I really loved like that time of R&B after disco. Um, you know, the the early 80s, kind of cheesy, but there was like a disco sensibility still like that lingered on. <clears throat> and so we were like, let's just do an album. Let's do a little a little project of that. So we did... I mean, there's like six or seven songs that we did. And I mean, I don't really know. I'm not going to get too into like the details of it, but it was really fun to work on it with him. Like Twilight Tone is a whole legend. And I think like, I think, I don't, I don't know if he knows that about himself, you know? So, you know, it just stagnated. We it, it took so long. We tried to get it picked up by a label to get some money to help finish the project. And neither of us knew what the hell we were doing as far as like putting out something on our own uh, um, or how the music industry worked. So I think it was a situation where we were both waiting for somebody to tell us to keep going or somebody to say like, here, let, let us help you instead of us just like, putting it out so then it got like a couple of years went by and I was like well let's just put something out so I went and finished the tracks with Peter Wade who um actually his studio him and his partner were the studio where Santi worked in like full force uh were working out of that studio oh, wow. too and um so we just I recut the vocals and we took all the stems and put the songs together because like a lot of it was just on you know, random parts were all over. And so I was like, just give me everything. Sammy Bananas helped us get all the stems oh, wow. um, so that I could get them to Peter. And so I was like, I'm just going to put Jack out. Like I'm not, I won't, we can't make money off of it because of the sample, but let's just put it out. And then I put it out and I don't think he was like happy that I put it out. I don't know. So I was like, you know, I won't put anything else out, but it's out now. So sorry, you know, that was one of those <laughs> few times where I didn't play by the rules because I'm always, you know, to a fault following the rules all the time. And I was like, I'm tired of this and I'm just going to put it out and you can, I'll just say sorry afterwards, which sometimes, is what I did. Sometimes that's the way to do it. Um, 
you know with especially with putting music out because you know you can labor over that stuff for way too long um Mm. and that's what we did yeah and it was a such a good oh it's such a good project it's a good project and now like it's like a very popular sound like when Tidra Moses put out her first album I was like see (laughs) (laughs) this because it wasn't it was still felt very like fresh and new wasn't just retro because I feel like that was where Tidra Moses was coming from when she when she put out that album, it was like, oh, well, I like these bops, but I'm going to make them mine. Thank you to Nina for putting that in the chat. Uh, you can get, you can listen to that song on SoundCloud. Thanks, Nina. Right there. Big up, Nina. Thank you. Um, so the last question I have for you uh, before we wrap it up, and um, mm-hmm. thank you again so much for your generous time to, for us for this interview. Of course. Um, the, the question we ask all of, our, all of the guests on the show uh, what does the power of music mean to you? Woo. I mean, I guess it goes back to when I was talking about like not feeling like I have a clear understanding of like my heritage and, you know, just having to and just um, having this understanding that like I do, you know, like black culture is American culture. Like um, I talked to Jason King for the last episode of season one and I'm I'm not gonna get the exact quote right, but he was just like, you know, so much of American popular culture is rooted in black coolness. And so I was like, oh my God, that's a bar because it's true. Not only did we like our free labor build this company, country but then all of the culture comes from a lot of most of our culture American culture comes from black people and so I think music is that it's like my identity that's my flag right like as a black American that's my flag because I don't feel fully represented by the American flag if I'm being really honest I feel like it don't really want me so and people that look like me so but that's something that's undeniable. And so I think that's why it's so important for me to like constantly remind everyone, even if they don't want to hear me, that, you know, we created this. So much of this is something that we created. That's why it's so important, I think. That's awesome. And it's definitely the way I've learned so much about what you what you talk about and, and you know, on your podcast. It's that's the that's the that's the bit, you know, that kind of joins it all and 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 presents it so yeah mm-hmm. absolutely 100 percent um i just want to thank you again so much Lindsay, for your time um and for everything that you do you know we i just really appreciate all, every, all you know honestly the podcast the sharing um really grateful grateful to know you and um oh, yeah. i feel the same way thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the serato channel i really i mean i still feel like the you know like the just a local working DJ that's not working that much anymore. So it is really like, it feels good to, to, for you to have, to get that email and be like, Ooh, Serato, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Like it's like, who wants to hear what my story? Yeah. Oh, I've been meaning to, to have, have you on here for a minute and um, it's really good that it all worked out and I know you're a very busy person. So uh, yeah, again, thank you for your time. Um, Everyone in the chat is in, is is thanking you for your time, and yeah, we're honored to have you, and we're really really lucky to have you, you know, um, on the show today. So, 
Um, please, if you're not following DJ Lindsay already, give her a follow on Twitch, DJ Lindsay NYC. Uh, you can just type follow, uh, exclamation point follow in the chat and we'll pull up all the links. Check out her mm -hmm. podcast and give her a follow on Instagram because, uh, yeah, just all good, all good vibes all the time. And, um, well, you know, all, just great, great stuff um, all the time. So definitely, uh, again, thank you. And we're going to we're gonna ride out to, uh, yeah. What shall we ride out to? Can we, shall we ride out to Kush Jones? Go to Alexander O'Neill back on. Okay. Or Kush Jones, either one. Let's, let's, what, what, what song we wanted, wanted to play off, uh, off Hearsay? You call it. Off Hearsay? Hmm. What about... I kind of want to hear off a different album now, too. Now oh, that's that I so good. picked Hearsay. What about All True Man? And I, like, I feel like... All true man is like what I was talking about when you hear like his voice is not the same. You can hear, you can hear it fading away. Okay. Alexandra. But it's still like, it's like you can, that, that speaks to like what a powerful singer he is that like through his addiction and all of that, he's like singing down. Oh, wow. There's even, okay. Check this out. So we're going to, we're going to watch this on YouTube because that's what we got um, for this. And we're going to, watch the hd video of all true man yes and this is off this is on check it out down here can you see the alexandra o'neill appreciation society oh, i need to join that is I'm it a facebook subscribe. group no i'm going to subscribe <laughs> to that channel right now pick up the alexandra o'neill appreciation society and we should make a we should make a dj Lindsay appreciation society too but Aww. this is this is the we're gonna ride out to this. So um, yeah, thank you again, Lindsay. Let's ride out to Alexander Alexander O'Neill, All True Man, HD, um, <laughs> on the YouTube. All right, peace, Jams. everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Can I leave?